0: Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. After adopting a virtual format for its 2021 iteration, SPIE welcomed the global photonics community back to San Francisco last month for Photonics West. The resurgent six-day showcase began with a BIOS symposium, which segued into hallmark events including the PRISM Award ceremony, ARVRMR mister conference, and of course, the exhibition. SPIE reports that nearly a 1,000 exhibitors displayed at Photonics West. The more than 10,000 registered guests enjoyed more than twice as many technical presentations, grouped into 95 conferences. Also returning to its regular in-person format was the annual SPIE Startup Challenge. Now in its 12th year, the challenge creates a platform for new businesses, products, and technologies that address critical needs in photonics. Finalists compete for a $10,000 top prize, pitching to judges from all corners of the industry landscape. Today on All Things Photonics, we speak with Jonas Zöner, CEO of Vitria Lab. The Vienna-based startup and its glass-based waveguide technology took first place in the Startup Challenge. The company's technology can replace the standard backlight unit of a liquid crystal display. Their technology ensures that each subpixel is powered by a dedicated light source with correct color, polarization, and angular distribution to significantly enhance the LCD's performance. Later, we'll share a conversation with Joel Rothman, biomolecular scientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a collaborator on Project Starlight. Rothman provides the biological expertise to a shared effort that is aiming to use directed energy arrays to send invertebrate organisms into the cosmos. We'll ask him the hard questions like why and how on today's episode. First, it is our pleasure to be joined by CEO of Vitria Lab, Jonas Zoyner. Here he is with our news editor, Jake Saltzman.
1: So we're joined by Jonas Zeuner, who is CEO of Vitrio Lab. They are the winners of the $10,000 top prize, just back from Spy Photonics West 12th annual SPA Startup Challenge. Their technology enables more power efficient displays. They use glass-based waveguide optics to get there. Uh, Jonas, congratulations, first of all, on the uh, Startup Challenge victory. Can you describe Vitrio Lab's core technology and uh, what is it, how does it work?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, thanks very much, Jake. So essentially, what we're able to do is uh, changing light control quite drastically in, uh, in displays. And what this enables then later on is a fundamental change of what you can do with this, this displays. And, and to give you an idea of what we're doing, so we take a, a standard piece of display glass and we modify it in our lab with lasers. And then later on, what this piece of glass is able to do is generate a very dense array of uh, red, green, blue laser beams. And this array can be so dense that it's actually on the, on the spacing of the pixels in your smartphone or laptop device and so forth. And yeah, and then you can just take this, this kind of uh, standard display glass. You, you use it t- together with a standard LCD, but what you get is a, com- a display with a completely different performance. It, completely different performance in more fundamental optics terms in what we call like uh, attendue or light control. But uh, for a consumer side, uh, much high energy efficiency, you can build fantastic 3D displays, uh, you can make displays much brighter, all these kind of channel changes. This is all based essentially on this modification of the piece of glass that we're doing. And we're doing it uh, using something called direct laser writing. And essentially, um, what you do is you, you just move your glass piece under a femtosecond pulse laser. And this locally melts your glass microscopically small, like on the two, three micrometer size inside the glass. And then you can uh, just string it along. You create uh, these modification channels. Um, called light channels or waveguides, uh, however you want. They're much smaller, uh, thinner than a human piece of hair, roughly a factor 50 to 100 smaller than a human piece of hair. And yeah, you, you, you just create very large, very complex um, um, like channels and uh, channel arrays of distributing light coming, for example, from one red laser diode to millions of red laser beams. So from one green laser diode to millions of green laser beams.
1: So on the material side, right, liquid crystals are constantly evolving. That's a separate track. Um, liquid crystal displays are evolving. That technology on a separate track is is growing, Um, but they do have a standard backlight unit, right? And what your technology does is it replaces and ultimately enhances the light
2: properties of that unit. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, essentially, what just to be clear about what an LCD typically has, is it's just um, a rectangular big LED conceptually in the very back. And then in front, you have the liquid crystal. And liquid crystal is just millions of light shutters for red, green, and blue light. And then they essentially block selectively the light over the different pixels. And um, then you arrive at your image. Yeah, the main problem with that is it's incredibly wasteful. So you you lose like 95% of the light that you actually create. And then if you look at your monitor, you have to realize an incredible bright light source in the back. And that's why energy uh, demands are so high. And we can just change this light flow through the display by taking out the LED, putting in the chip, and then you have your much easier light flow through the display. It's conceptually around... 90% 90% instead of 5%. And
1: this is happening at your lab. It is uh, Vienna based, you're Austrian based. You're back now in the lab. Uh, tell us a little bit about the lab, the facilities, and, and some of the equipment that you have here on
2: site. Yeah, indeed. So um, we are based in the south of Vienna. Um, we moved out of uh, university based labs um, one and a half years ago. We built our own clean room lab. We have now um, a um, fully-fledged fabrication and characterization systems um, getting more and more automated by the day because also we increase throughput, of course, because as you can imagine, there are many different things that have to be tested. You're not going to do like one fabrication, you have to do hundreds. And yeah, so we have now a team of eight researchers um, dedicated full-time to to pushing this technology ahead. And typically, we produce like one or two devices um, every day in our laser fabrication system. Then they're characterized um, the next day, the data is analyzed and we iterate uh, like this. So we make one improvement after the other fairly quickly. We're talking about
1: the, the winner of a startup challenge, it's a fairly new company, and this has all happened uh, in the midst of a global pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what that's been like to, to form and then evolve so quickly? Well, uh, things like the supply chain, for example, are in a state of flux.
2: Yes, uh, that was uh, uh, quite difficult to say. So actually, we built our own lab in um, June, July, 2020, and uh, yeah, it was not exactly fun trying to, to, to get all the components arrive in time because as a startup, you course are an intense time pressure. And we wanted to from start to finish half the lab operational within six to eight weeks. In the end, we also managed, but, but it was tough. I mean, things were kind of arriving randomly. One master for non-imprinting process got actually three months delayed, which could have been a major problem. But in the end, it did arrive. So yeah, it, it was not exactly fun. Uh, it, it did influence us significantly.
1: One of the things that's true of of your company, as is true of so many startups, you're dipping your toes, so to speak, in the pool of many distinct technologies. Certainly, you have an eye on optics technologies, lasers using femtosecond pulse laser technology here. We just mentioned liquid crystals on the material side. And all of these distinct technologies are evolving uh, in their own way, right? For a company like yourself that relies on different technologies, different components to make things click... How much of a challenge is that to make sure you're getting the latest and greatest pieces of technology all into what you are trying to do for your company?
2: And that's a great question. I mean, for us, um, liquid crystal technology, for example, is something is incredibly mature. And they, they steep, still keep um, building better devices out of, out of them. But for us, there's not really any difference between one liquid crystal display or another. We can, can use IPS, TN, VA, whatever you throw at us. But what we certainly see is that on our production side, for example, there's quite an involvement um, in femtosecond lasers. And uh, we also use uh, stages by Aerotech to move around the glass. And these supplies are really pushing the envelope further and further. And this is very helpful for us. So, for example, you see the, the price of the femtosecond laser power per watt, essentially. The price per watt is, is dropping down and down and down further. For example, I saw like an amplitude laser now 300 watts. Light conversions also trying to move to hundreds of watts, potentially kilowatt later on. So that's why it's very, very helpful. The maturity of LCD technology is only one piece of the pie
0: that is the global display market. And that's the sector Vitria Lab aims to innovate with its technology. Of course, there are other applications for precision illumination. Many of them are in the life sciences. Thin devices that can integrate a top-down laser array support a wide range of applications given the structure of the light pattern.
2: Yeah, I think any anything that needs kind of... Um, an area of light or pinpoints of laser beams for illumination, for uh, analysis, for, um, for figuring out distances between elements. So we've been also approached by other companies than just the display sector, for example, doing uh, optical coherence tomography or doing, um, for example, microfluidics. In microfluidics, you're also going to have a lot of tiny uh, base light channels and you want probably to illuminate them, to analyze them. And all these different things, uh, these these kind of unique light control comes in because there are very few devices, if you think about it, which are thin, but can generate um, a laser array coming out of the top. Because typically everything is in plane. And so this kind of change of 90 degree of light pattern that you can generate uh, suddenly offers a whole new host of applications that you can find.
1: And when you're starting a company, certainly the focus is just on starting the company. Did you have on your uh, you know was it in mind for you and your team that there were biophotonics applications to be engaged with here?
2: Yes, definitely. we've we've always been looking into that. Um, and we so far neglected that because we see this place as the far bigger market. And of course, as a startup, you, you have to have focus, right? You have to push in one direction, really maturing your technology in that direction. But I'm, we're absolutely open for other ideas. Uh, we do small projects also on the side to see what comes out of there. And yeah, let's see what the future brings. Maybe in the end, we're going to go somewhere else than we we planned at the beginning. It wouldn't be so unusual, right?
1: No, it would not
2: be so unusual. Let's
1: talk about the startup environment. You were one of nine other startups participating in the finals of the SPIE Startup Challenge. I myself was unable to attend Photonics West. You were there how was it? How was the environment? It's certainly a collaborative environment. Was it uh, everything you expected and more?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, what was really great is, um, I think, the high level of like expertise and knowledge on, on all parts, like um, on the startups, obviously, which were very interesting and kind of had a very broad field from quantum computing down to um, like coherent manipulation of laser beams or simulation software. So you could get the full graphs of what is actually going on in the optics photonic uh, community there but also from the side of the jury right they were quite diverse you got feedback from investors you got feedback from deep optics experts and i think it's one of the few places uh, essentially on earth where where you kind of bring together all all these people um, from such a diverse photonics background uh, and you can talk to them and get direct input <laughs> Yeah. You know, was that part
1: of the experience? Were there a lot of these conversations? You know, Not just startup companies, any company is going to benefit from these uh, conversations, whether they're on the R&D side or the business investor side. Uh, was that part of the experience? And, and if it was, how important is that for a company such as your own?
2: I think for us, it's it's tremendously important. And then in, in, independent even of the startup challenge, just, just being there, because we also had the booth. I, it was the first time we as Vitrolab went there, and we had actually no idea what to expect. So we were thinking maybe <laughs> we, we put our things there, and then maybe one person per day shows up and, and like says, okay, that's neat, but fine. But in the end, uh, it was really engaging. So we're almost constantly people coming, um, not just, just from the display industry, saying this is cool technology. Could we maybe use this for that? Uh, could we maybe even use it in the camera system? Who knows? And that was really motivating. It really showed that we had something um, that could make sense in many different ways to people. And that makes us also very optimistic as a company that as we grow forward, there will be applications in various fields to bring this to the market. VitrioLab's success at Photonics West,
0: culminating in its victory at the Startup Challenge, sets the company up for a host of new projects and collaborations. As Zoyner mentions, the company is actively engaging in discussions and continues to introduce its technology to the global photonics audience. We asked Zoyner about the near-term and longer-term goals for Vitria Lab now that all personnel are back from San Francisco with $10,000 in new prize money.
2: What's really cool is to see that people did not just come by and say this is interesting, they are actually following up with meetings. And I think over the next two, three weeks, we will see in which direction we're heading. And for example, something that was always very open for us is, um, does it make sense to use this technology in augmented reality? Um, And this was something we started in autumn to to figure out, could this make sense? And then we went there and people essentially were coming to us uh, and naturally saying, could we use this in (laughs) augmented reality? And that was a, a great validation in that field. And we're pushing a lot now into that and making maybe even the tiny pivot from like 2D, 3D, to more augmented reality uh, display components.
1: No doubt, much to think about and much work to be done. Jonas, I wanna thank you for joining us. Congratulations again, and best of luck moving forward with your technology and
2: your business pursuits. Thank you very much.
0: It's time for the Luminary Minute, a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. This episode will be taking a step into the 1600s to look at the contributions of Christian Huygens, a Dutch mathematician, physicist, astronomer, and inventor. Those disciplines intersected in his interest in optics, more specifically in telescopes. Huygens studied spherical lenses extensively and eventually began grinding his own lenses with help from his brother Constantine. In 1662, Huygens developed the first compound eyepiece, now called the Huygenian eyepiece. The device has two plano-convex lenses, with the plane sides towards the eye, separated by an air gap. Huygens is perhaps best known for his wave theory of light, which at the time was not widely accepted, particularly because longitudinal waves only have a single polarization which cannot explain the observed birefringence. The theory was later revived in the 1800s, when Newton's corpuscular theory fell short of explaining certain phenomena. In 1821, Augustin Jean Fresnel was able to explain birefringence as a result of light being a transverse wave rather than a longitudinal wave, as had been assumed during Huygens' time. The Huygens Fresnel principle was the prevailing theory used to advance physical optics until Maxwell's electromagnetic theory and the discovery of the photon.
1: As so often happens when physics and biology come together, the good times are rolling for our purposes, in Santa Barbara, California. A collaboration at UC Santa Barbara between biomolecular scientist Joel Rothman and experimental astrophysicist Phil Lubin is planning to send nematodes and tardigrades of all creatures on an interstellar journey. It's a pretty straightforward pursuit, not really, of course. The experiments, if they come to fruition, are poised to rely on about one-tenth or so of the U.S. power grid. Here's how it works. By placing the tiny and, as it turns out, wildly resilient creatures in microfluidic chamber single-millimeter crafts, and by using directed energy arrays as a power source, the team plans to launch the microscopic animals out of space at speeds approaching the speed of light. We'll talk about this in an upcoming episode of All Things Photonics. We'll be joined by the biologist and the physicist together. Among our questions, the obvious. How? And why? I took a bit of a dry run this week when I spoke with Dr. Joel Rothman. To understand the scope of the feat that is laser-driven interstellar travel, it certainly helps to understand the biology of the creatures involved. They're called C. elegans. They're in line to be the ones actually leaving orbit. Rothman has been working with the tiny worms for more than 30 years, and he knows, as well as anyone, how transferable their biology is to our own. That, as much as anything, serves as the biological impetus for these missions. But there's more than that, as Rothman points out. It's about knowing not only if humans can survive in the darkest galactic depths, but if they'll ever have a presence there. I begin our conversation by asking about Rothman's motivation.
3: Part of the drive is that this is the first test of animal life beyond our solar system. We really think we're going to populate the galaxy someday as a species. We need to find out. You know what's going to happen to animal life as you do that. Before we start sending humans out there, uh, we didn't do that when we went to the moon, of course, but but nonetheless, we'd sent fruit flies and mice and monkeys and dogs up in orbit around the Earth and inferred that okay, it's probably going to be okay to go to the moon. But it, it seems like if we're going to go a lot farther, uh, we want to get as much information as we can about the impact on physiology and reproduction, and lots of other things of such a trip. For me, it's also ju- I just think it would be the coolest thing to be able to watch my little creature and I'll go from a fertilized egg up into an adult and look at every single cell and every single cell division as that's happening four light years away, for example, as we're flying by the Alpha Centauri system. That would be really, it's just, wow, that's so cool. (laughs) But it would provide information both about the impact on, for example, potential astronauts and about the the limits of life in extreme environments uh, outside our confines of the earth. The creatures of which Rothman speaks, C. elegans, are, in fact,
1: quite remarkable. Think about your own least tolerant day and then imagine just how much worse it would be to be frozen for years at a time or forced to operate in a virtually moisture-free environment. We discussed the beauties that are these wonderful worms and the qualities that suit them so nicely for interstellar journey. As it turns out, C. elegans have already completed somewhat of a trek at the hands of Rothman himself. The worms are just fine to be frozen. They're small, which is critical. And they can be manipulated to exhibit innumerable developmental advantages.
3: C. elegans, I've been working on them since uh, 1989. And the first ones I worked on back when I was a young man as a postdoc, I stuck them in the freezer. They stayed in that frozen state when I moved to the University of Wisconsin, flying across the Atlantic then in a U-Haul truck going to Santa Barbara, and they didn't know anything happened to them. And when we take them out of the freezer, uh, they're up and hopping in a matter of a few minutes. And, and they are exactly in the state that I froze them in as these juveniles, those 30 some odd years ago. Um, they're they're older than nearly all of my graduate students. Um, and, and what makes them work so well for that, for freezing, is that they're very small and They can be permeated with a solution that allows them to be frozen. We use a glycerol solution, one of the main approaches, which prevents ice crystals from forming. Mm -hmm. And so ice crystals are destructive to life. You get, you know, these crystals form, you're going to tear up cells, but they don't freeze into these The crystals don't form when the glycerol is present, and if you freeze them very slowly, they'll be able to uh, reach a very low temperature indefinitely and stay there indefinitely. And nothing's happening at minus 80 degrees Celsius. Um, So it's their small size, the ability to permeate this freezing solution into them. uh, And those are really the two things that make them work for that. But the other thing is what makes them worthwhile as an experimental organism. As a matter of fact, they are, of course, I have my own biases, but for studying Biomedical problems, and fundamental animal biology problems, they are far superior for a number of reasons than studying a much more complicated, much larger organism like a mammal, like a mouse, because A, they're so manipulable. They develop extremely quickly. The generation time is three days. From a fertilized egg to an adult laying fertilized eggs is three days. So from one C. elegans, hermaphrodite, which is self-fertilizing, they produce sperm and eggs. From one of those, you will get almost 30 million of them in nine days on a petri plate, but they also, they are the only animal, they were the first animal uh, and still the only animal on the planet in which the developmental process from a fertilized egg all the way to an adult, every cell division, the position of every single cell, the movements, etc., has been completely mapped out in totality. You can, by the way, follow that on a star chip on a, on a little, uh, Device that's being sent across the cosmos. As long as you have good imaging, you can watch that happen. And they were the first and only organism for which the entire nervous system has been completely mapped out. We
1: don't often take deep dives into biology on this podcast. Dr. Rothman forgave my non photonics ignorance in revealing that it will, in fact, be two distinct invertebrates playing the role of interstellar sojourners in these proposed experiments. In addition to C. elegans, which is a nematode tardigrades will also be recruited for the experiments. Like sea elegans, these creatures, you might know them as water bears, are highly tolerant. They're also, believe it or not, somewhat of thinkers. Is it possible to train an invertebrate?
3: You can train them. These little guys that live only a few weeks and they have a generation time of three days. You can train them. You can teach them to avoid something that they wouldn't care about or to be attracted to something they normally wouldn't care about. If you give them a reward, in the latter case, or something they don't like in the former case. And when you do that, you can show that they retain memories for substantial periods of time, and you can then freeze them. You can put them in suspended animation, and when you thaw them out whenever you want, could be years later, guess what? They remember what you trained them back in the beginning. Memories can be frozen. And so if you want to understand, for example, learning and memory and the impact of space travel on cognitive functions or at least memory functions you can do it with these little creatures not this obviously the high level of cognition we have but still cognition in terms of cognition what they can sense is they can sense their environment around them they both nematodes and tardigrades in particular sense light just like we do they can sense uh, electromagnetic fields uh, and respond to them they can sense gravity as we just discovered in my lab In the last few years, we're just coming out with a paper on this, that C. elegans senses gravity and moves in the vector away from gravity. They move away from the center of the earth. They move up um, and we've identified the neurons and the genes that are involved in that process. Uh, They can sense touch. They can, you know, from from touching each other, they have taste, they have smell. So they have uh, the sensations, they have memory. Most of the things that a human can do, uh, these little guys can do in terms of our fundamental function. So again, if there's any even minor perturbation in the ability to remember or sense through nervous system function, we can detect it in these words in a highly quantitative way. We can uh, do highly quantitative experiments because we can get large numbers of these.
1: You'll know by now that I was stretching the truth when I mentioned the simplicity of this work. There's nothing at all that's overtly simple about it. What is remarkable, though, is the level of preparedness that sea elegans and tardigrades alike bring to these experiments. Biologically, the animals are virtually it to go, even though go really does signal
3: an ambitious launch. From the biology standpoint, I don't want to be glib, but we could go next year. If we had craft ready to go, we could do all of the experiments we'd like to do and learn an enormous amount in about a year, you know, just the time to develop to to devise the specifics of the microfluidic craft and you know well-established engineering techniques that are already available that we use myself uh, in our lab in collaboration with people in mechanical engineering and so forth, right. we, um, we would be able to do all the experiments I've talked. about. We'd be able to probe all sorts of questions about life immediately. So it really is, the challenge is all about uh, getting this system to actually work.
0: Joel Rothman has studied C. elegans and other invertebrate creatures for more than 30 years, and he oversees the biology component of Project Starlight. His joint endeavor with physicist Phil Lubin at UC Santa Barbara aims to send invertebrates into space via directed energy laser arrays. You'll hear our complete conversation with both members of the collaboration on the next episode of All Things Photonics, with a focus on the directed energy arrays that are poised, at least in theory, to send C. elegans and tardigrades into space. We conclude today's episode of All Things Photonics in the Animal Kingdom with a question that has long tickled the minds of our listeners. I can't tell you how many emails Jake and I get about it. Can LiDAR help a goldfish learn to drive? Well, we've listened to your insistence that we probe this question, and in the March edition of Photonic Spectrum Magazine, we answer. Spoiler alert, it can. Here, once again, is Jake Saltzman. Technology journalist Ian Betteridge has a law
1: that stands in his name. It's called the Better's Law of Headlines, and it states that any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. Despite this law, it turns out that LiDAR can, in fact, enable a goldfish to drive. This captivating reality stems from the results of an experiment conducted by researchers in Israel that sought to determine whether a goldfish's navigational abilities could extend beyond its water-based environment. The scientists, working, by the way, on the type of goldfish you find in a fishbowl and not in a child's snack mix, explored the possibilities using domain transfer methodology, in which one species is embedded in the environment of another and made to cope with an otherwise familiar task. That task, in this case, navigation. The researchers built what they called a fish-operated vehicle, or an FOV, which you should not confuse, by the way, with what we normally mean around here when we say FOV, field of view. This vehicle consisted of a small fish tank mounted on a wheeled frame. In lieu of a steering wheel, it used a pole-mounted camera, a computer processor, and a LIDAR system that was aimed at the fish in the tank. The camera and the LIDAR determined the goldfish's position and orientation within the tank, as well as how the tank was positioned in relation to its environment. The processor then used this information to extrapolate the fish's navigational intent to determine the direction in which the vehicle should move. When the fish pointed itself at a target, the vehicle moved in that direction. The research team allowed the goldfish to go on a supervised joyride to observe how its actions influenced the vehicles in movement. When the system appeared to be operating swimmingly, the researchers added targets that granted a food reward to the fish if it managed to successfully navigate to them. Over time, the fish came to understand that its actions influenced the movement of the vehicle in desired ways that led to a tasty treat. The team subsequently changed the system's driving course to allow the fish to experience indoor and outdoor environments like a lab room in a parking lot. They found the fish had no problem adapting. In fact, it consistently drove straight for the proverbial golden arches to receive its reward.
0: That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.